asking right now. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some ushers, I think, that would love to get a Bible to you. So if you'd like, why don't you raise your hand, they will get Bible to you. And you can open up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been in a series now for quite a while, actually, uh, just not in any rush to get through this, but really trying to take time to think about it, consider it, the words of the authoritative writers that have given us good wisdom and information that we want to learn to live by. Um, one of the key themes that we've been pointing out throughout this entire book is really this idea of suffering, um, and yet suffering well, um, combined with this idea of doing good. How does one suffer well? While at the same time, do good. Live a life that is deeply devoted to loving God, loving others, and doing good. Um, This book really seeks to answer that. And Peter, the author of this book, is really trying to write uh, by way of his wisdom, the accumulated knowledge that he's gained, the direct insight that he's got from Jesus to a community of followers of Jesus that are scattered abroad, living in hostile territory, meaning that the world and the culture at large around them is not in any way, shape, or form embracing their uh, process of becoming like Jesus. They don't really care about Jesus. They don't really care about the religion of Jesus. Uh, And yet, at the same time, they're pushing back. And here these people are trying to live faithfully to God. And one of the reasons why we've been saying from the very beginning that we think this book's so important to us right now in this season is because I think this past year and a half, two, two years almost, has kind of felt like that. It's just a lot of suffering, a lot of turmoil, a lot of upheaval. Um, and yet at the same time, there, there's a number of us here on the Central Coast scattered abroad that say we really want to be faithful to Jesus. How do we do that? How do we do that in our culture? How do we do that in our marriages? How do we do that in our workplaces? How do we do that in a culture at large that really, for the most part, does not care about the life of Jesus? Uh, before we jump in, what I want to do right now is I'm going to start with an exercise. So if you guys can just with me, bear with me during this little bit of an exercise. And what I hope to accomplish through this exercise is try to transport you, at least mentally, maybe even emotionally. So I have to just kind of warn some of you, emotionally, this may be a little bit triggering. But I want you to at least just bear with me during this little bit of an exercise. Because what I want to, what I want for you to do is I want for you to kind of imagine or envision a culture or a world where looks like this, and I'll explain it to you. So there's at least uh, four different things or three different things that I want for you to think about that are going to be part of this thought experiment. Number one, we'll take a look at the idea of male supremacy, sexual hedonism, and then female abuse. I promise you it will get into the actual text and it'll all make sense. But first of all, I really want for you to just, as best as you can, imagine with me this little bit of an exercise. So imagine a world where men were not only in charge of all things political, Social, economic, business-oriented, household life, but men ruled with a sense of brutality and fierceness. Men, it would have been expected for them to have multiple uh, wives in some cases, and in almost every case, multiple sexual partners. We could call these concubines, we can call these sex slaves, where it was a common practice for men to basically take advantage of women in this particular way. It was totally non-scandalous. Um, as a result of that, men were basically free to divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever. It doesn't matter. You can burn the toast in the morning. You can just not be satisfying sexually anymore. You could be traded uh, in for someone that's younger, better looking, has a better physique than yours. And therefore, that's part of the landscape. Uh, Beth Felkner Jones, uh, historian writer, says this. She goes, at the time, uh, people thought 
men thought men couldn't commit adultery. It was a woman's body that were, uh, it was women's bodies that were property and could be stolen or damaged. In other words, a man, for the most part, could not commit adultery. He's in charge. He's, he's got the power. He's got the ability to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with his body. He's in control of it. Women were not in control. All right? I want to move on to a little bit of the next idea, which is this concept of sexual hedonism, which is what it naturally leads to. Because men who are in charge need to do something with their fierceness and their ferocity and their power. And oftentimes, if it's not causing war, it's raping women. It's taking advantage of women. This is the landscape. Listen. Um, as we continue to think about this idea, uh, sexual hedonism was oftentimes this uh, enslaving, controlling force that was at play, uh, which brought about all sorts of unwanted pregnancies, uh, which then resulted in abortions. Women were basically, again, just part of the landscape, property, rights to be able to be treated. However, the men who were in charge chose to treat women. Michael Gorman, the historian, says this, in the Greco-Roman world, it was by far uh, the most frequent reason for abortion was to conceal illicit sexual activity. So if a man uh, ends up impregnating a woman and he doesn't want to be found out because in any way, shape, or form, that will jeopardize his career, his future, his uh, business, whatever, his honor, uh, you, you just kill the baby. That's it. That's it. There's no choice. Like, you just kill the child. It, it, that's going to be a disruption. Most oftentimes, if it was a male that was going to be born, sometimes the man would keep it and kind of have kind of like a, like a backup child, a, a, you know, a bastard child is what they would describe it. If it was a female, for sure, you just, you just let it die. In fact, there are historical uh, or geological records or uh, accounts of uh, the bones of infants clogging the drains of the ancient Roman aqueducts. Think about that. Just think about that. Bones of babies clogging the drains of the ancient Roman aqueducts. Uh, to continue, uh, Nancy Piercy, who wrote a book called Love Thy Body, which I highly recommend. If you've never read this, I, I would urge you to pick up this book, read it. If it's too big or too weighty or too uh, uh, theologically uh, heavy, which it is, um, I highly recommend picking up another book by a guy named John Mark Comer. Uh, he wrote a book that heavily influenced by this. Uh, it's called... Live no lies. Live no lies. Check that book out. She wrote this. She goes, there is a direct, obvious relationship between sexual hedonism and abortion, and as another expression of a low view of women. In the ancient Greek and Roman culture, it was widely accepted that husbands would have sex with mistresses, concubines, slaves, and prostitutes, both male and female. An ancient Athenian saying was, wives are legal heirs, prostitutes are for pleasure. Just think about that. Wives are legal heirs. Prostitutes are for pleasure. So in other words, again, whatever and however you tend to think about love or in modern day construct of marriage, in this world that I'm describing for you, which was an actual real world, so uh, it actually happened, um, in this world, women did not marry for love. Women typically married in order to produce children. Their offspring would then go into kind of sort of a holding pattern for the next generation, which would be able to provide prosperity for future generations. Nancy Pierce would go on to say this. She goes, promiscuity uh, was even held to be divinely sanctioned. The Roman gods practiced both adultery and rape. So the big idea was the very gods and goddesses that were widely accepted and widely worshipped within the pagan 
uh, um, cultural makeup of society at large, uh, you would basically do, in other words, as the gods acted, so the people would act. That's just kind of the way it always works, which, again, gives you a very interesting stark contrast between Jesus and how Christians were to emulate the lifestyle of Jesus. So, in other words, whoever you worship, whoever you're loyal to, whoever you're devoted to, you would then begin to live in accordance to whatever that god or deity or entity was. So, in this particular context, the Roman gods, they practiced adultery, rape on a regular basis, so therefore, it's in a reason uh, men would do the same thing. This is kind of the way of the landscape. Thirdly, this would ultimately lead to tremendous amount of female abuse or dehumanization. So emotional, physical, sexual abuse, rape, were oftentimes a part of this uh, world system. Um, there was no voice for justice or victimhood. So in other words, if you were a victim of this, you say, for example, were a woman, that you were raped, you had no way of combating that at all, whatsoever. You might have a, a community of women that you are deeply loyal to and you have a desire to try to do something against this, but you had absolutely no power whatsoever in the culture at large to do anything about it. It was a powerless place that you found yourself in. Women were basically viewed as this lesser class or gender. Nancy Pierce, who would also then go on to say, in Roman culture, sexual violence against poor and powerless women was widely accepted because they were regarded as social non-persons. They were not thought to have any legal rights that could be violated. So that phrase, non-persons, is really important because we live in a culture today right now, which I'm not going to go too much into right now and thinking about, but we live in a world today that makes a vast distinction between human beings and personhood. Human beings and personhood. If you want to know the classic example of this, think about unborn rights. They're viewed as persons, or as humans. They have a heartbeat. They're humans. They're not persons to be disregarded whenever, however. The point that I want to make is this, as we go on to continue to think about this, is that this was the world of the ancient Roman culture. This was widely accepted. This is just the status quo. This is how things happen. Um, as a result of that, there are consequences of ideas. So if you're a woman, say, for example, married, think about, imagine the degree of insecurity you would consistently feel because your vulnerabilities were always exploited. Think about that. As a woman, as a woman, you have absolutely no rights. Your husband can rape you, and you have absolutely no voice against that. He could divorce you. You have no rights to withstand that. And if you're divorced, just tossed out uh, like yesterday's goods, uh, and you have no money, how do you survive? It was very common for women back in those days to resort to the means by which they could make some money is prostitution. One of the reasons why there were so many prostitutes in that ancient world, which is probably one of the reasons why Jesus spent a lot of time with them. Let that sink in. Who did Jesus spend time with? The people that were cast off. The people that were not given a voice. The people that had no power whatsoever within the culture at large. And this is who Jesus spent time with. Now, men... Also, I want you to think about the pressure that you would also bear up under this. Because as a male living in that cultural matrix, you had to somehow live in such a way that was consistent with the social norms of the day. Otherwise, you would be viewed as less than masculine, less than male. You would be required to live in such a way that exerted your dominance, exerted your power. You know, we would maybe look at that and call toxic masculinity. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is the way the world was back 
then. And this is the world in which Peter is writing. And he, he actually, what I want you to get from this, is Peter actually re-envisions a different way for men to be men. And that's what I want to do right now. Is I want to read how Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, re-envisions a future for how men are to live in such a way. So why don't you guys open your Bibles. Hopefully you already have them. The book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I want to read right here. He says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. We'll get more on that. So right now some of you just broke out in hives. You're like, wait, he's calling us weaker. Hold on. Since they are heirs with you, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right. I just read a lot of quotes to you. I want to read a few more that I think will be very, very helpful. And I'm just going to give the stage to, again, Nancy Pierce, who's got a lot more to say. So just bear with me. I think it's well worth our time just listening to what she has to say. Here's what she says. In the ancient culture, spouses were selected with an eye to things like social status, property rights, and legal heirs. In sharp contrast, The New Testament taught men to love their wives as their own bodies. The husband's headship. Now, in Roman culture, men had headship roles. But headship roles were vastly different than the headship roles that Peter's going to lay out. Men are still, in our modern world, which is, for the most part, riddled with third-wave feminism, is an attempt to discredit or to tear down any form of male headship or patriarchy. The idea is there. But what Peter does is he doesn't tear down that. He basically rebuilds it in a different, unique way that actually has greater authority, greater power, greater beauty. Here's what he goes on to say. The husband's headship is re- at, was re- redefined as self-sacrifice, modeled on Christ's sacrificial love. He, she cites Ephesians chapter 5. Men were not to abandon their wives through divorce. Did you hear that? They were not to abuse their wives physically or emotionally. This is why... Uh, Paul would later say in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not uh, treat them harshly. She goes on to say, To the shock of the ancient world, the New Testament taught that men, not just women, were to be faithful to their spouse. In the ancient world, of course, of course women are to be faithful to their husband. They don't have a choice. If you're unfaithful, you die. It's as simple as that. You betray the master of the household. When you betray a master who's got authority and power, you are now subject to whatever type of ferocity is going to be exhibited. Again, there's no rights in that world. However, in the new world that Peter's recreating, based upon the vision given to him by the gospel that Jesus is basically bringing forth, breaking forth upon this planet, in this new world, he says, uh, the shock of the ancient world, the New Testament taught that men were to be faithful to their spouse. Christianity stood out as radically different because it taught that the husband actually wrongs his wife by his adultery. Such even-handed treatment was revolutionary. Paul did not care that in the ancient world, men's sexual freedoms, uh, men's sexual freedom was considered completely acceptable. I love this. I love the way the inspiration is going it's like Peter, like, I don't, I don't really care. Man, you can go ahead and have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, no matter how often you want to do it. Peter says, I don't care. That's not how we operate in the church. It's different. It's different. Paul did not care. In the ancient world, men's sexual freedom 
was considered completely acceptable. In the church, there was a new law. Men were called to sexual fidelity and exclusivity just as much as women were. At a time when wives were considered legal, legally in possession of their husbands, Paul's writings were radical. By elevating the status of women, they delivered a severe blow to the double standard that was the pre-Christian norm. And in keeping sex within marriage, the biblical ethic drove down the demand for abortion and infanticide. Children were born into families committed to loving and caring for them. This whole thing called family, that is not the dream of anything other than the Christian worldview. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. The Judeo-Christian worldview envisions a world where a man's role in the family is one filled with life giving actions and attitudes towards his wife and towards his children. This is new. This did not happen on planet Earth until we begin to see this spreading forth through this means of the gospel. Second century document, and this is what he goes on to say. I'll finish the little sentence here. And by keeping sex within the marriage, the biblical ethic drove down the demand for abortion and infanticide. Children were born to families committed to loving and caring for them. A second century document called the Epistle of Matthias, Mathetis, of Dignitas, sums up surprising behavior, set Christians apart from the pagan world. It says this, they, I love this. This is this guy's testimony. Again, first century or second century. So there's like hundreds maybe like 180, we don't know exactly when, 180 AD. Whoever this person was that was written down in the historical record, he says this, in observing Christians, he goes, man, they have children, but they don't destroy their kids. They have a common table, but not a common bed. The word common just simply means uh, shared. They share their tables with everybody. They don't share their bed with everybody. In our world, we reverse that. We share our tables with nobody, and we have sex with anybody. It's our world. Is that, is that correct? It's our world. He goes on to say, and as uh, this little section, they beget children, they have a common table. And then it goes on to say, this is radical indeed. Then as what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they will give to the surrounding world. I'm going to read that again because I want you to listen to this. Then as now... What Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. They are called to build a community of families that respects women and cares for the young and the vulnerable. What you do as a human being with your sexuality will be one of the greatest testimonies of Jesus in the world around us. I'm not going to go into this in depth right now, but I want to finish up with some final thoughts to consider because I really want to get to really looking at the passage here and focusing on a few things that I think Peter wants for us to really consider. But the point that I would make is this. It cannot be relegated off to the margins that this was just some sort of like unnoticeable trend that came onto the Christian world. That this thing that Peter's telling us about right now was so radical, so revolutionary. In fact, what Nancy Piercy describes in her book is that women were literally attracted to Christianity like no other people group. They saw Christianity as a means of their salvation, not just simply providing life for the afterlife, but they saw Christians as a means of something that would not only 
uh, remove the reproach that they bore and the shame they carried and the uh, elements of vulnerabilities that they were constantly susceptible to, but they saw it as a means of rehumanizing them. And this is what Peter's calling men to consider. So men, I want you to listen carefully to what you're called to. And I first of all want to ask the question, why is this so essential? And I would want to first answer that because I think what Peter wants for us to understand is that everything he's calling men to is not abstract, it's not arbitrary, it's literally the central message of the character and the nature of who God is. Because God is all of these things he's about to unpack, he says, therefore, as this God is all of these things, therefore you men are called to live in such a way that brings recognition of Jesus This past week, I was listening to a message, and it was uh, from a uh, Greek Orthodox pastor. And he was describing um, an icon that I actually later went and looked up. And if I had it, I'd show it to you, but I don't. Um, It's an image of Jesus, uh, the Good Shepherd, standing literally over Hades. And he's reaching down, and he's lifting up Adam uh, Adam and Eve, uh, two, two figures, a male and a female. And it's believed to be Adam and Eve. He's lifting them up out of death. And the image that I want for you to have in your mind is that this is what Christianity is. It's Jesus lifting you out of the dehumanizing platform of death and destruction, calling you to rise again to a brand new humanity. This is the image. This is the word of God breathed from the Holy Spirit into our lives. And should you abide by it, should you live according to it, should you adopt its ways and say, I will align my heart, I will live in agreement with it, it will change you. And it will, through you, ultimately begin to change other people. So listen to what Peter, again, has to say. And I'm going to finish up with some four things, four thoughts that I think Peter's calling us to. Number one, listen to the passage. Again, likewise, husbands, love, live with your wives in understanding in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of this grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there's four things I think Peter is basically calling husbands to be. Husbands are to be, number one, physically present. Live with your wives is the idea. Be physically present. The idea of being absent, the idea of not being present, the idea of not being there. In a lot of ways, this is something that's been new over the past 100 or so, 150, 200 years or so, since the uh, since uh, Industrial Revolution, where men were basically called from out from the farm, where they were raising their kids and their wives and going out and spending all the day out in the field and then coming back, having a meal, and doing that on repeat over and over again. Since the Industrial Revolution called men oftentimes away from the households into some sort of factory in the city, and we've just continued on that pattern. We've developed a culture where men are no longer there. They are absent from the spouse. And I think in order to relive into this new vision that Peter is summoning us to live according to, it involves men being physically present. Secondly, it involves men being emotionally aware. Men being aware. Listen to what he says in verse uh, 7, the little uh, third section on here. It says, in an understanding way. The word understanding literally means knowledge. Gnosko uh, is the idea of knowing by experience, learning about your wife, studying her, knowing who she is, knowing what her likes are. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy that had wrote the book, but it's a book called The Five Love Languages. If you've never read this book, you need to read the book. Does anybody know the name of the author? 
Gary Chapman. You need to get the book. Gary Chapman. Check it out. The Five Love Languages. It will change the way that you view the world. In other words, this is just part of you learning about how your wife functions and how she operates. And again, I realize that probably for most of you in this room right now, you're not married. That's why I've been telling you for the past couple of weeks, I'm going to create a whole nother message next week just for you guys. It'll be on how to do good as singles. In other words, how to honor God within our singleness. And that will be something exclusively that we will look at solely next week. Peter says nothing about it, but there's plenty to say throughout the rest of the New Testament in terms of how a single person, one who's not married, should and could live in a way that does good. But the second thing I want for us to think about is this idea of being emotionally aware, that the man, the husband, is to be aware of how his wife ticks, how she thinks, what her needs are, what her longings are. If you are a man and you are physically present, but you are emotionally absent, that is not fulfilling this role. Again, why is that important? Because all of this is a summons to live in a way that God lives. We have a God that was present, steps into our world, but is totally emotionally connected to our lives. He knows what's going on inside of each one of us. And then thirdly, this idea of husbands are to be honoring in their actions. Listen to how he goes on to say this. Showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs in, um, with you in the grace of life. Now, again, I mentioned the idea of a weaker vessel. Um, this is not weaker in the sense of being lesser than in terms of personality. This is just the idea. I think most scholars would agree. This is probably a reference to physical strength, physical ability, which, off, again, in that first century culture, this, this, is, this is a moot point. Like, nobody would argue with this. We live in a culture today, again, that has been deeply affected by third-wave feminism that basically says a woman can do anything that a man can do. It doesn't matter. And again, this is where biology, biological framework would actually push back and say, no, there's differences, but that's okay. not, Not one is better than the other, but they're both equal in that sense. And what I think Peter's basically saying is that men, as you have been given this unique opportunity and you have unique giftings and abilities, biologically so, that put you in a place of maybe advantage, even in that culture, use that advantage in a way to better, to protect, to help, to strengthen, to sustain the livelihood, the flourishing of the woman under your care in that context. Uh, I think of the word chivalrous. It's a word that nobody uses today. But the idea basically means courage, honor, courtesy, bringing forth justice. These are the types of things that if a man were to recognize, again, we've heard a lot over this past year with regard to privilege. What does privilege mean? It means that if you have some degree of ability or strength, how do you use, how do you steward that privilege? As a, as a man, I think the way that Peter would say, use that privilege that you have of strength and ability and whatever type of uh, emotional or a cultural currency that that comes with, use that in such a way that could be steward to bring about another person's good and protect them. We like to say to our men that we gather on Wednesday nights is to use the strength and the power that you have to produce good, to protect the good that's there. These are the things that we're called to. And then lastly, he describes the idea of being alerted to the consequences of missing the mark. And this is the very last little movement in in verse 7. He says, so that your prayers be not hindered. So that your prayers be not hindered. I'll be really quite frank with you. I don't know exactly what this even means other than it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It terrifies me. I think what Peter's basically saying is that there's something in connection with a man and his relationship with God and the wife that he's called to steward. So in other words, if rather than 
uh, using his strength and energy to bring about her flourishing and her growth and her humanization and a future that is filled with life for her, then there's a disconnect between that man and God. Something is being missed there. And the way that Peter describes this is so that your prayers be not hindered. And I want to finish with just basically three exhortations that are just all my own. These are my little little freebies to you. So you get what you pay for. But the point that I want for you to just think about, I've been married 31 years. I'm going on 32 years. I'm not an expert, but I've learned a few things over the years. And these are three things that I just want to leave you men to consider. Number one, become a marriage expert. Become a marriage expert. If I were to go around the room right now and ask you men, what are you passionate about? Some of you would be like, ah, oh, I love motorcycles, and I love fishing, and I love outboard motors. I'm really into surfing. I'm into you know, play kettlebell, right? I'm into all of these things. I just called you out, dude. I'm, I'm into all these things that you can like spend time watching, looking at YouTube videos, becoming an expert in. But what I want to encourage you, be an expert of your spouse. Study her ways. Learn about her. Become a good husband truly become a, a man that knows how to live into his relationship knows how to culture and nurture that relationship in a way that brings forth life now again i don't want to leave any illusions we're not we we don't have a perfect marriage but when things break and they do often we go back we have the items and the utensils to figure out how to fix them And when we don't have them at our disposal, we have other people in our lives that we turn to. They pray for us. We seek God. We humble ourselves. And within time, we begin to see God bring forth healing. But the point that I would make is that become a marriage expert. Hone your skills in terms of what it means to be a master husband, to learn how to do that well. Second thing is learn how to ask questions of your spouse. This is all part of kind of the same idea. But the second thing, I think you can learn, you can do this by learning how to ask questions. Feel compassion. Be present. This will require you oftentimes to recognize that it involves your time and your investment to really ask these questions. So the big idea here is is don't be afraid to ask your spouse, are there areas that I can improve in? That's scary. It's terrifying for a lot of men. And I'll tell you why. For a lot of men, they don't want to feel like they're failing in a certain area. I get it. Men can oftentimes be perfectionists. But that might be the number one reason why you're not doing well. It's called pride, is another word for it. It's called pride. And pride will destroy you. And it will destroy your marriage. It will destroy the very things that you cherish and value most. The best thing that you can do for your marriage is to humble yourself in the sight of God and in sight of your spouse and ask them the questions that might be hard. And let them speak to you. And you actually might find that they might be blown away, number one, once they're like, get off the floor in sheer shock. Like, whoa, you just humbled yourself in front of me. I don't even, I don't even know how to, is this really you? Like, is there somebody else in there? Is there a Halloween costume? Like, is this, but the point of the matter is, what you will begin to find is that respect actually might be built back into that marriage. Respect might come back and alive. And the last thing I would just highly recommend you men is be involved in a men's group. Be involved in a group of other men. Again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you men are not involved in some form of place where you have others in your life that are speaking into your life regularly, consistently? And I don't just mean peers. Other men where you just sit around, drinking a cup of coffee, smoking a pipe or whatever, and just like, like complaining, commiserating about the woes of your life. I mean men that will actually sit down and challenge you. Not coddle you, but challenge you. Not condemn you, but challenge you. 
in the ways of Jesus. One of the number one things I've known and I've discovered over the years in dealing and working with husband and wives is most of the time, in fact, almost all of the time, every single time I've had to sit down with a husband and wife and realize there's some grave challenges and brokenness here. One thing I've noticed is that men want to be in charge, but they don't want to be under the authority of somebody else. They want the authority, but they don't want to be under the authority. Your lust for being in charge is killing you, men. Learn to humble yourselves. It's hard. Learn to humble yourselves. Submit yourselves to other godly men in your life. Let them speak into your life. Let them challenge you in ways that maybe be painful, that might even cause you to have to go back and look at some of your own daddy wounds, your own insecurities, your own vulnerabilities that you're trying really hard to cover up. But I promise you, men, that in doing so, you'll chart a new course for your life and for the life of those that are within nearest proximity to you. This is the image, I believe, that Peter is basically recasting for how men are to live in such a way that reshapes landscape for the purpose of goodness. This is heavy. I get it. It's hard for maybe some of us. But I want to finish just with an invitation to us as Nick comes on up and as we go to the table, you eat the bread and drink the cup. I want for us to remember that this is why we gather every single week. Why we encourage you, consistency. Do it every single week. Gather with us every week. Because this is something you cannot do through a podcast. You cannot partake of the bread and the cup through a podcast. You cannot do this simply watching online. We're glad to be able to have this online stream. Hi, online audience. But the point that I would make is this. We need to be present. And one of the reasons why we take the bread and we drink the cup, it reminds us how much we need God's grace. So we show up. And God shows up. We come in need. And Jesus comes and says, I have everything to give. We come needing forgiveness. Jesus says, I come to forgive. We come needing strength. Jesus says, I come bearing strength. We come with our shame. Jesus says, I come to take that from you. We come with our various degrees of brokenness. Jesus says, I've come to heal your brokenness. This is why we come to the table. One simple reason is because we forget all the time and we're constantly on repeat brokenness until one day we see Jesus face to face and our lives are completely renewed. Until then, we need this. We need gathering. We need scripture. We need to hone our skills. We need repentance. We need confession of sin. We need God's grace to make us renewed. And my great delight to share this with you guys is that's what we have right now is the good news to come, to remake all of us brand new.